The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers over by the Kids Zone sign. If it's your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Good morning again. It's a fascinating passage, one I've known about almost my whole life, even reading it as a kiddo, teenager, adult, and as a pastor. I'm still not entirely sure I have my arms all the way around it, so I think that's part of the point. Just to remind you where we're at in the story, Jesus has just asked them, who do people say that I am? And they have said, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, others say one of the prophets. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And gets it right. Although what Peter was connotating was wrong. Peter thought, he was Christ like King David, that he's going to come and bring military and governmental victory to Israel. And so he says the right words, you're the Christ, but he doesn't know what he means by them, or at least what Jesus means by them. So Jesus says, 
actually, I'm going to suffer and die and rise again. And Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him and says, stop talking like that. We can win without you dying. Jesus rebukes him right back and says, not only am I going to die. And then he gathers Peter, the disciples, and the crowd and said, actually, not only am I going to die, any one of you that would follow me, that would call yourself a Christian, you're going to die too. You're going to pick up your cross every day and suffer. That's the context that we find this. That Jesus tells them what it means for them to be Christians, to be Christ followers. In fact, he says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, some who are standing there will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took him with Peter, James, and John. Commentators argue about what he means, that some of you who are standing right here won't even taste death until you see the kingdom. When you've got a life like Jesus, it's hard to know exactly what he's referencing because the kingdom comes in power all the time. The kingdom will come in power as the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost. The kingdom comes in power when Jesus raises from the dead and 500 people see it. But what seems most obvious is the kingdom coming to power is right here in this text. Now we'll start where we're going to end, which is there's some passages I want you to hear, think about these three things differently. Or here, I want you to know this, so kind of drill this into your mind, memorize this. The application for today is like Neo in the Matrix. Whoa. That's what I want you to experience. Let's pray and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I'll pray for your Holy Spirit. What we're doing here is common unless you move. It's just religious exercise. It's just people trying to make sense of their suffering, people trying to make sense of their story, people trying to feel a little bit better about the sin that's within them. But if your Holy Spirit comes, it changes everything. Those that are blind can see. Those that are dead can be made alive. Those who are limping can walk out of this room with their held head held high. So I beg your spirit, please don't let us waste our time or your time this morning. Please send us your spirit. Make us alive. Move powerfully, we beg. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're getting near to the end of the school year, and I don't know if it'll be the same way that it was last year, but at the end of last school year, Cormac and Carson ran out the last day of school to the van, and they had something to show us. The last day of school is always exciting for a kid. They're staring down three long months of summer, and they're so pumped about it. Last day of school is always super intimidating for mothers because they're staring three three months down, and they're super excited about it. But they come running out, and I went with her, and you know, they're all jacked up on candy because it's the last day of the year, and the teachers are like, ha ha, your problem now, parents. And they, and they enjoy them, and they send them with candy, and they send them out of there. But our kids come running out to the car, and like, Mom, Dad, look, look, we got certificates. And they are so pumped about the certificates of, I guess, graduation from each in their particular class. And so that, look at my certificate. Did you see hers? It's a little different. Look at my certificate. And we're like, those are amazing certificates. We're so excited for you. And then Cormac says, Dad, 
what's a certificate? <laughs> this, this sense of it's something I know I'm supposed to be really excited about, but I don't quite understand it. That's what's going on here in this text. Peter and James and John, there's something that they know they can tell they're going to be really excited about it, but they can't quite get what it is. You see, this story, it jumps out at us, but it's hard to know what to do with it. There's Moses, there's Elijah. There's the Shekinah glory cloud of God, which is what we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. There's all these things going on. And not only that, we're used to Jesus saying, hey, don't go tell anybody this. Don't go tell anybody this. He's been saying that so that he can continue his healing and preaching ministry as a man on earth. And if they go and tell people who he is, the temperature is going to get turned up faster than he wants it to, and they will come and kill him. And so in trying to linger longer with them and preaching the real gospel to them, he says, don't go tell anybody. But this one's particularly special because he tells the three not to tell the 12. He says, don't even tell anybody this. So if even the 12 don't know about this story as the rest of Mark unfolds, the point of it for us is that this story was for Peter and James and John to think about after Jesus rises from the dead. This story is something that as they go through the painful chapters of Mark 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and the eight verses in Mark 16, as they are experiencing those that they have in the back of their mind, this story, that even when the story gets really, really hard, they've got this in the back of their mind, in the back of their heart, that they were allowed to peer behind the curtain of God. So this story was for them, so that they could later tell it to us. And it's interesting that it happens to them right before the march to the cross. As if the Father is saying, I know that Jesus needs to hear my reassuring words, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but the disciples are going to need to remember that all the pain they're going through, what they've so far understood about Jesus is too small. That Jesus is more than they think he is. And that's what this passage is about. So that when they look back on what they've experienced, they will remember that Jesus is more than who they've thought him to be. And that's what I want you to experience this morning. As you experience the suffering and difficulties and bumps and bruises of this life, I want you, like the disciples, to realize I have underestimated Jesus. And he is more than I've thought him to be. Let's first look at this revelation of Jesus himself in this passage. What does this mean? Glance with me in verses 1 through 6. And he said to them, I truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after, Je after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, 
one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. They were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Remember that we've been walking through Mark, and I just walked you through sort of the context of people are finally starting to to land on the answer to the question, who is Jesus? And Jesus has introduced his identity, and now he's going to tell them about what it is his job in these next eight chapters. And it seems that Jesus, after overwhelming them with the fact that I'm going to die and Peter, you're going to die. That's what it means to follow me. I'm going to die, and you're going to die. Almost as if he's overwhelmed them with the reality of where the story is headed. He takes Peter, James, and John aside and says, but that's not all of it. And you haven't fully understood me for who I am. Jesus' reference here is found in Daniel 7, 9. It says this, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Ancient of Days is nicknamed for God. And his clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. And his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. Matthew's version says it this way. Then he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. So he is bright white, and his face is shining. It's supposed to remind you of, if you remember when Moses wanted to see God's glory, he, he goes to God and he says, show me your glory. And God says, if I do that, you'll die. And so what I'll do is I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll put my hand over the rock and I'll pass by. And as I pass by, I'll remove my hand and you can see the backside of my glory. And do you remember what happened after that? Moses' face shone, not just for a little while, it shone from then on. It was, it was bright. His face had been near something so bright it was radiating the glory of God. One of the commentators says, here except for Moses, Moses it was like the moon. The sun had shined brightly upon it and, and the moon, Moses was reflecting the glory. Jesus actually is the glory. Kent Hughes says this, this cloud was a sign and manifestation of the presence of God. That glory cloud that you're talking about? A cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out from the cloud. Kent Hughes says this, this cloud was a sign and manifestation of the presence of God, the form in which God revealed himself to Israel. Think about that. This was the form in which God revealed himself to Israel, is a cloud. Listen to what he says. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, went before Israel in the wilderness. This was the cloud that passed by Moses as God covered him in the cleft of the rock with his hand, so that Moses only saw the afterglow. This was the cloud that covered the nearly finished tent of meeting and filled the tabernacle with God's glory. Same cloud that filled Solomon's temple. This cloud, God used to communicate to his people, hey, I'm here, my presence is here, I'm with you through this cloud. And nobody had seen this cloud in 600 years. The Shekinah glory cloud of God had, had gone missing. And here, the Shekinah glory cloud of God 
surrounds them and wraps them up. It's as if to say the power of God, the presence of God is here and not just because of the cloud, because of the person of Jesus. That's what it's saying. That the one who created all things had come to live with his creatures, as Sally Lloyd-Jones has said. That's what he wants them to understand before they head into the season of struggle. As they head and watch Jesus mocked and doubted and persecuted and whipped and put to death and all of them will scatter into the darkness what he wants them to understand as they think back on the life of Jesus is that we saw the Shekinah glory cloud of God in and through the person of Jesus the story must not be over yet they're getting to see God's presence in Christ. That's what Moses and Elijah are doing there. Moses used to be the mouthpiece of God. He spoke the law. Remember the Ten Commandments. You want to know what God wants? Ask Moses. Moses meets with God. Elijah's the prophet. He represents God speaking to his people so that his people would be a certain way, that they would live a certain way. You want to know what God's people are supposed to be like? Ask Elijah. And right there, they're both there sort of as witnesses and testimony to the fact, you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God feels? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God acts? Look at Jesus. What that means is that you yourself get to see God in a way that Moses never did while he was alive. Moses didn't know what God was like like you do. He understood a cloud and thunder. You understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, you see God as God meant for you to see him. In Jesus, you see God as God meant for you to see him. Everything you need to know about the person of God and the person of Jesus. And you know what I notice? You know what I notice if I, I want to learn about God and so I look at Jesus, you know what I notice? How gentle he is to the least and the lost and the lonely. I mean, think about the people that keep interrupting him and bumping into him. Rabbi, would you help me? Would you save my daughter? Would you heal me from this disease? Would you take away this demon and send it far away? And constantly interrupted. You want to know about God? He's gentle and he's patient and he's interruptible in Christ. That he wants to feed his people. He sees them with compassion. As sheep without a shepherd, he feeds the 5,000, he feeds the 4,000. You want to know about God? Look at Christ, a man of compassion and power. The man who is gentle to the lowly. And you want to know about God? He has shockingly no time for spiritual pretense. If there's any form of religion that is about keeping the money in the family, keeping the religion to ourselves, feeling better about those, feeling better about ourselves instead of look at those dirty, bad people over there, Jesus has no patience for it. If you watched Jesus walk through Mark and you're supposed to be concluding this is what God is like, what you should sense is that God has compassion for sinners and is frustrated with pretense. Compassion for brokenness 
and frustration with superiority. Hebrews said it this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. So Hebrews is sort of summing up what's going on. God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And through him, he also made the universe. It says this, the son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He's saying you used to have to listen to the prophets, listen to Moses, listen to Elijah. Now you want to know what God is like? Look directly at Jesus. That's the application I have for you this morning. Your sin, your shame, and your suffering will cause you to ask the question over and over and over again, what is God like? Look long at Jesus. Look long at Jesus. You see, what happens is we start looking at ourselves. This isn't the life I thought I would live. I thought I would be doing better by now. I thought I would be a better person by now. I thought I would have stopped this sin by now. I thought this suffering that we bear would be gone by now. Me, me, me. And what the author to the letter of Hebrews is saying and what Peter is saying, and what Mark is saying is look at Jesus. We are so used to looking at ourselves and we wonder why we can't shake loose spiritual discouragement. It's been said that every one time you look at your sin, your sin, look ten times at Christ. That's why we're not up here preaching moral improvement plans for you. That's not why we're not, we're up here, we're not giving you the 10 ways to get a suffering free life. You're going to continue to struggle with sin and you're going to continue to suffer. What we're up here saying is when you do, look at Jesus. You sinned, but he didn't. And you suffer and he suffered more. And he will rise and you will rise too. application of the text is whoa Peter and James and John get to peer beyond the curtain and see Jesus the one who created the heavens and the earth the one who is the exact representation and he gets to have Moses and Elijah and we don't even know from the text how Peter and James and John know that it's Moses and Elijah I doubt they had name tags but Peter and James and John know Jesus is standing there in the Shekinah glory of God with Moses and with Elijah, and they're all talking together. And they're going through this. They're experiencing this incredible moment because God knows Jesus needs the reassurance, and Peter and James and John will too. That's what's next. Peter being Peter says this, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Mark is the, the gospel of Peter. It's the stories of Peter, the testimony of Peter. 
this, one of the commentators in this said, just imagine Mark and Peter are laughing about this later. And he's like, do you remember the whole Shekinah glory thing? He's like, yeah, Moses and Elijah were there. He's like, yeah, I offered to make them tents. He's like, I didn't know what I was saying. And Mark writes down, and Peter did not know what he was saying. (laughs) They were terrified. They were terrified. You see, we think of it as this, this sweet, powerful, encouraging moment. But when the Shekinah glory cloud of God descends on the earth, or just like you see when the angels come, What people do is they scream and they fall on their faces, terrified. And we'll get to that. But Peter wants to set up shop. We don't exactly know what's going on inside Peter's head. I'm not sure Peter knows exactly what's going on in Peter's head here. There could be something to there's three tents The Shekinah glory cloud, God used to meet with his people in tents. Maybe we can keep the cloud here if we have the tents. Maybe he's just thinking back on the religious practices of what it was with the temple and the tabernacle. And if you want to keep God near, you've got this temple and tabernacle. Maybe he's just thinking this is so much better than what Jesus was talking about beforehand. Let's stop talking about all this cross and self-denial and going to lose stuff. Instead, I'll get some tents. I'll set them up here. And Elijah and Moses and Jesus and me, I guess, will hang out here together. He's having this spiritual experience this high, and he doesn't want to leave it. He doesn't want to leave the spiritual mountaintop. This is what he wants. And we're like that too. You've had a spiritual high. Maybe it's on a retreat or a special youth trip or a special mission trip. And what happens on it is so good and so encouraging and so affirming that you come back and people are like, hey, how was your trip? And you're like, you kind of don't even know where to start. You're like, it was good. Because you can't possibly welcome them into how good it was. And you've had that. And we want to hang on to those spiritual experiences. There are moments in this room when we finish preaching and finish taking the sacrament and you're singing your lungs out. And I look down, some of you have tears in your eyes, some of your hands raised. All of you are singing your lungs out. You're embracing this moment that you're experiencing actual worship. The Holy Spirit is here. And you're experiencing actual worship. And I and I what I realize is what's going on is, is you don't want to go back out there. You don't want to come down off this spiritual high. It's hard out there. And you have things that are waiting for you out there that you don't want to deal with. And so we're in here and we're together and we're singing our guts out. Now you're all going to be super self-conscious when you sing. And I don't want you to go out there. I just want to freeze you in this moment and say, this, this mountaintop high, this is the moment, this is what it's like. And we are supposed to have those moments. That's why God is giving Peter, James, and John this moment. But the reason he's giving Peter, James, and John, and Jesus this moment is because they're about to head to the cross. 
And he wants them to know that as you walk and as it is hard and as you lose and as you suffer and as you die, remember this moment. Who you're dealing with is Jesus, the one that Moses and Elijah testified to, the one who is now the Shekinah glory cloud of God. So when you see him die, the story is not over yet. And when you have your spiritual highs, those sweet, important, purposeful moments where you're experiencing something real and with grit and that can sustain you, it's not there so you can stay there. It's there so you can go back down into the mountain and pick up your cross and follow him. Kent Hughes says this, for a brief moment the veil of humanity was lifted and his true essence was allowed to shine through and Peter and James and John were to hold on to this and what was to come. The veil of humanity was lifted and his true essence was allowed to shine through. He was giving it to them as a gift so that when they're sitting in an upper room with the door locked and there's only 11 of them left, that they would remember that the story wasn't over yet. And he gives us these experiences, these gloriously spirit-filled experiences, not so that we can set up shop, so that we can go back to what he's called us to do. And what does God say about Jesus in this moment? Look with me in 7 and 8. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Doesn't Jesus already know that he's God's son? Why the words? Derek Thomas says this, one of the reasons for this was a reassurance of the Father's love for Jesus as he undergoes the passion and the crucifixion. If Jesus needed that reassurance, it's okay that we need it too. You are my son with whom I am well pleased. He's saying Jesus is about to stare down sin, death, and the devil. And more than that, he's going to stare down the wrath of his own father, who he has been in perfect relationship from eternity past. This self-giving, mutually loving relationship of father and son, delighting in one another with the Holy Spirit. And there's delight, and there's so much delight that it bubbles over into we need more people to love that person that he has this much delight in and trust in is going to turn his back on him. Jesus is going to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason that he's going to say that is because in Christ, God turns his back on Jesus and turns his face towards you. And that moment was going to be so profound, so earth-shattering, so devastating for Jesus that the Father stands over him now and says, Jesus, you're my son, and I am pleased with you. You're doing the right thing. I love you. 
And we have to use moments like these to remind ourselves of what is true. Remember when we said at Mark at the beginning, the dove defend, descends on Jesus in the baptism? You hear the voice from above, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And at the baptism, we're supposed to say, as you are baptized in Christ, as you put your trust in Christ, what is true, is him, true of him is true now of you. And here it's true here. For those of you who have put your trust in Jesus, what is true of Jesus is true of me. Jesus looks at you in your sin and in your struggle and in your suffering and says, you are my daughter, with you I am well pleased. You are my son, with you I am well pleased. What's true of him is true of you. Jesus lived perfectly, now I'm no longer a slave to sin. Jesus died obliterating sin, so I'm going to stop walking around feeling guilty all the time. Jesus rose, I too shall rise. One of my mentors said that he challenged all the people in his life to memorize this verse. Since then you have been raised with Christ. He's talking to people who are still alive. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Listen to this. For you died, and your life is now hidden in Christ with God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in what? Glory. So you think I'm using preacher exaggeration to say that when God looks at you, the Shekinah cloud of glory, Moses and Elijah are there. When God looks at you, he says, this is my son, this is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. It's not preacher exaggeration. It's what the Bible says. You died. Your life is now what? Hidden in Christ with God. What's true of him is now true of you. He was declared faithful, you'll be declared faithful. He finished well, you'll finish well. He, ri he rose, you too will rise. So as we peer back at the curtain, we see God's fondness for you, not just for Jesus. Peter says it this way. So Peter, you know, we're always teasing him because he always messes things up. The end of his life is an apostle. Second Peter, he writes this, hang with me. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we were told about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. He's saying, we, we didn't make this stuff up. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from the Father when the voice came to him. Listen, what is he describing? When the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. You see, Peter understood the assignment. After Jesus had died and rose again, and after they were sent to make disciples of all nations through the power of the Holy Spirit, he remembered this moment. The moment he wasn't supposed to tell anybody about. And he said, you want to know why I know 
that we're going to be okay and that Jesus' kingdom has come in power, I was there. I was there. I was an eyewitness of his majesty. And what did the voice say? Not, that, not only that Jesus is the beloved son and therefore so are you and I. We're supposed to listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him when he says, it is finished. There is no more distance between God and his people anymore. Listen to him when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. We're supposed to listen to him when he says, go and love the poor. Go find the least, the little, the lost, the lonely. Go and do that. Just as we share in his identity, we share in his actions now. But what are the things that we listen to instead of Jesus? Maybe our instincts, maybe our wallet, maybe our career, maybe our desires. Are you listening to him? There's a funny satirical article written about listening to God. It's entitled this, Man Sitting Literally Three Feet Away from Bible Asked God to Speak to Him. According to sources, local man Steve Harrison fervently prayed Thursday that the Lord would speak to him and make his will for the man's life clear, all the while sitting literally three feet away from God's word as revealed in the Bible. Are you listening? We'll close here. The disciples don't get it. They've just seen the glory cloud peeled back. They've seen eternity peeled back and they get a glimpse that the creator has now become one of us so as to save us. That the one that Moses and Elijah were anticipating is finally here in Christ. That the Shekinah glory cloud of God was not a cloud anymore but a person named Jesus of Nazareth. And they don't quite get it. And the application for you is if it takes you a while, if it takes you a long while to get it, that's okay. These guys had every opportunity to get it and messed it up and messed it up and messed it up. The one thing they do right is they just keep following. They just keep asking. If you're here and you're like, I want to get it, I want to I know, I want to experience what you're talking about, I just don't go easy on yourself. Jesus was their teacher, and it still took him three years. But just keep following. Just keep asking. Just keep listening. They're trying to make sense of it because it sounds like Elijah has to come first, but they're not sure Elijah has come first, and Jesus is trying to point out to them that the Elijah that they're referencing is John the Baptist, that he is, John the Baptist is functioning in Elijah's profiting role. And that they've killed John the Baptist. And he's saying, just as they killed John the Baptist, fellas, they're going to kill me too. He's trying to remind them what kind of story this is. And they're going to need it. Again, Kent Hughes says this. Christ was saying, in effect, the pillar of fire that came between you and the Egyptians, the cloud that guided you in the wilderness and illuminated the night, 
and enveloped the tabernacle, the glorious cloud that filled Solomon's temple was me. That's what he wants us to understand, and he wants them to understand it right before he dies. Imagine that moment. They've killed Jesus. It says in Mark later that they all fled into the night. They've heard the news. They've gathered back together, the 11 of them anyway. And they're in this locked room. And they're all totally ashamed of themselves. And they don't even know which end is up. Because they were following Jesus and now he's dead. When I imagine, it's just my imagination that it, it starts to, this story starts to stir in them. That John was dead. And Jesus told us he was going to die. And they remember the cloud. They remember the mountain. They remember the Savior. So that as they go through what is difficult, they will remember that they have underestimated Jesus. They have underestimated Jesus. And that's what I want you to experience. That when you go through your sin and your struggle and your difficulty, that you'll think back on this and remember that you have underestimated Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, this text is so powerful, so nuanced, so overwhelming. I ask by your spirit that you would just cause us to walk away in awe of who you are and what you've done. And that being in awe of who you are and what you have done will bolster us for the road ahead. Thank you that you love us, that you listen to us, and that you're near us. Thank you that we don't need a cloud anymore and we don't need a temple anymore and we don't need a tabernacle anymore and we don't need Moses and Elijah anymore. That the one who made us has come to live with us. Would you help us to live like it? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you that we don't need a cloud anymore and we don't need a temple anymore and we don't need a tabernacle anymore and we don't need Moses and Elijah anymore. That the one who made us has come to live with us. Would you help us to live like it? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.